episode two of a nine point starter with a dream podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the nine point starter with a dream podcast. I'm your host, Jacoby Gillum. Today I'm talking with Daniel Kirk. Daniel Kirk is a para-athlete out in Australia. We talk a little bit about his journey as an athlete and how he kind of refound his purpose after suffering that terrible ankle injury. Um, so let's get to it. Hey, how we doing? Hey, bro. Good. How are you? Fantastic. How's the weather in Australia? Mm. Mate, it's pretty good today. You can probably, I don't know how much you can see out that window, but um, yeah, she's pretty, pretty nice. Cool, cool. Um, so, like, I grew up playing soccer, so played that through to about 17, 18 years of age. And then around that time, I went and did a tryout for a state state football team for, like, a like an underage one, like an under-18s with a mate of mine. He missed out, but I ended up getting invited to the preseason with them, having not played any, any Aussie rules in the past. So I went and did that. I missed out on selection myself towards the end of it, but... Um, ended up getting sort of signed with a, a local side and ended up playing uh, Aussie rules and soccer in the same year. So I did that and then had a year off the year after. And I had a bad back um, at the time for sports. I thought that maybe some time off and exploring a different avenue would be a good idea and just didn't like it. So I went back to football Aussie rules the year after um, and then just escalated from there. So I played for a low senior state squad and played a couple of years there just as a bit of a, um, a fringe player, I guess, and then made the move into state. So I was in Tasmania at the time, made the move over to South Australia um, to study sports science and to, to play football um, in the state league there. So it's the second highest competition in Australia. So I played that for the next eight years. And then the only thing that sort of brought that to a, to a halt was, was the ankle. So for those that don't know, what um, exactly happened to your ankle? Yeah, had a bad landing in, in 2012. Um, I was just in the process of, of moving clubs. Like I sort of felt like my time at that particular club was was done and looking to revitalise the career in, in a better environment for me. Um, and did the injury the last second last game of the season at, my, at the current club. Still moved clubs, didn't realise how bad it was, just thought it was kind of an operation away from, from coming good. Um, and then three operations later was pretty much forced into into retirement, but not by um, the club. They were fantastic, but by the, the injury. Um, and then I was pretty ambitious with, um, I guess, like I was stubborn. I didn't want to give up on, on able-bodied sport and felt that I could sort of outsmart it and problem solve it. So I spent, I reckon, four months sort of post that time just with my head in research and articles and contacting surgeons overseas to sort of see who was leading leading the cause in joint regeneration. Um, so I found some people in Italy and Germany who I felt would have a very strong case for being able to improve my situation. I contacted them and pretty quickly found out that it was going to be cost prohibitive. It was about 20 to 25 grand just for an operation without any sort of post-operative care, no travel, no accommodation, no support. And I'd have to spend at least two weeks overseas, like post-operation to recover. So I then contacted surgeons in Australia to try and see if anyone was willing to kind of try a similar procedure. I found someone, I mean, 
it was a big difference. He'd sort of done bits and pieces of, of that procedure maybe once or twice, whereas overseas they'd done two and four year follow-ups and had something like a almost a 78% return to sport or something. It was pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, 400 odd patients they'd seen. So he had a go at it. Um, it wasn't successful. We're like, we, we did a joint resurfacing. We did a, um, an external fixator. So that's where they put pins and drill them into your bone. Uh, then they stick rods straight through the flesh and then they connect it like a Meccano set and they distract the joint apart to try and give it a gap and to allow it some space to heal and recover. It's super painful. Like it's like having, it's literally like having a cage that's built into your leg. So I had that on for 11 weeks and mate, that was, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I reckon like at a countdown time on my phone so that, you know, you could try and keep yourself present and go, well, yep, it's 40 days to go or it's 38 days to go or it's because there was some pretty tough, tough times with that. End up getting some really bad infections because you've basically got open wounds. Like those rods are penetrating in and out of your flesh. Um, so, um, yeah, had some, some bad infections where I was on intravenous antibiotics um, because the oral stuff just wasn't strong enough and got it under control and got to the end of the 11 weeks and was just ready to bloody tear it off if they didn't operate on it and take it off. And then it was a waiting game to see if it, was, if it had done anything or if it worked. And the expectations were high, but the outcome was pretty low again. So at that point, it was kind of accepting that, it was, it was just a ticking time bomb to when I was going to finally accept that I was going to be able-bodied again, that my anchor was permanently damaged and that I needed to find a new sort of purpose and, and way of going about things because throughout that process, I'd you know obviously built up a lot of frustration and I guess despair and just lost my way, like lost my identity, lost who I, who I felt like I was and, and needed a purpose again. I was fortunate to have some awesome support from like, you know, friends, like because my family's not in it, South Australia. And a partner who I met after the third operation, who, so she's never known me as, as being able-bodied. Um, and she's just been wonderful. And, and we married um, early last year. Um, so that's been sort of a, you know, I mean, there's great things that have come out of it, obviously with what I'm doing now. And when I look back on it, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't change too much at all other than the first surgeon who I felt like made it worse. But in terms of what I've, you know, been able to carve out as a, as a life from it. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy with where I am and, and what I'm doing and, and feel like I'm achieving something and got a purpose and got good people around me. And so I'm, I, I consider myself pretty fortunate really. So going back to when the injury first happened. So, so what did yeah. that, so you had what ankle, the joint, yeah, so if you have a look on YouTube, there's a video. Um, if you type in Daniel Kirk Channel 9, I think it is, um, there was an interview done with me about six months into my career with Discus, and they actually showed the footage of the injury. And it, look, it's pretty innocuous. Like, it doesn't look great, but it doesn't look career-ending. And like I said, I'm of the belief that if, it, if the surgery had been well-managed early on, that I would be nowhere near as bad as I am now. So I think that played a pretty big role in they went in three times in 20 weeks like it was I feel wow. it was negligent um and just took too much tissue out and and you know the, the reporting on it was poor the expectations were not realistic it was it was poorly managed so yeah the initial injury was I, I come down and I sort of land really violently I guess on the on the leg where it, it just compresses the joint um and then kind of they, they tell me it's sort of sheared at the same time which is what caused the the damage to the cartilage 
Um, so there was no real twisting or rolling of the ankle joint. It was just an almighty thud. So you can imagine I was probably 105 and a half kilo at the time. So what's that? Maybe 220 pound or something or two, 230 pound. Um, and I've come down on one leg, like sort of after a jump. So there's a fair bit of force going through that, that one joint. So when that happened, what, what helped you guess to keep, I guess, trying to get back to the sport? What helped you kind of stay motivated and positive kind of like say, I can get back to where I was or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I've always just been a persistent bastard, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, it's something that's defined me as a, as an athlete is that I just, you know, you're always looking for a new way to do something better. You're always um, doing that little bit extra to try and further yourself. And and at times in your career, that sort of sabotages things because you, you, you're so obsessed with improvement and the next goal before you've achieved the current one that it can, can limit your progress, I think. Um, but it's also been hugely beneficial in different situations like this one where it's like, well, no, I'm not giving up. There's There's something that can come out of this. And I've just got to find out what it is because at the moment I'm completely lost, but that I'm not the sort of person that gives up. Like I don't just sort of retreat to a corner and sort of hide. I go, okay, well give me some options. What have I got? What can I work with? Like, and start trying to problem solve the situation. And I think like having some perspective was helpful. I remember sitting in the change rooms um, at my new club, probably about halfway through the season feeling really sort of sorry for myself about, you know, watching all the guys warm up and be ready to go out and play and just wanting to be part of it and desperately, you know, wanting to be able to do that stuff. And and I, I was on my phone as we do these days and reading a news article and about a father in Queensland um, who who's a quadruple amputee and he'd, he'd been able-bodied. He'd gone overseas on a work trip. He'd come home. He was the sort of person that never missed a day's work and yet he got home and he just couldn't get out of bed and couldn't go to work and he saw about four GPs over the course of a month and they all told him to go home, take some Panadol and sleep it off. There was nothing nothing sort of wrong with him. And the fifth time that he had to, to go and see someone, it was being rushed to hospital in, in an ambulance in a coma um, because his body was just shutting down and uh, made some assessments and spoke to his wife and family and said, look, he's... He's got a, um, his blood's poisoning him, basically, like the, his arm is septic. So your options here are that we amputate the arm and give him a chance at survival, or we don't and he's probably going to die. So the family had to make that decision because he was in a coma. Um, and then I think it was within 24 or 48 hours, they came back to the family and said, look, it hasn't worked. It's spread to the rest of his body. Um, he's probably going to die, but there's a like a 5% chance that if we, if we were to amputate the rest of his limbs that he may, may recover, but you know, big decision. What do you think? And it took, took the, the wife and the family less than 15 minutes to decide that that's what he would want and to go ahead with that. So they've within the space of what, 36 hours, he's lost all of his limbs. He's in a coma. Um, he didn't wake up for three months. And the first thing he said when he woke up was thank you. For me, like it was, I, I still get the emotional talking about it now. And I, I've never met the guy and I've, I mean, I've read his story and I've seen the documentary and, but I just found that really moving and, and went, well, shit, like, you know, I've got, you know, one bung ankle, like, which, you know, it hurts and it restricts what I can do, but holy shit, this guy has lost four limbs. And the first thing he says is thank you. Like, incredible. Um, really cool story, man. I can send you the links and stuff to his stuff, but um, he's uh 
it's been a big journey for, for him from what I've read and, and seen, but he's got the um, OSO integration now where they've got the titanium bolts that screw into his bones because he's like, he was literally like way up here where he's amputated at every limb. Um, and they've, they've sort of put limbs on that and he's, um, yeah, I think he's doing, doing quite well. I'd love to see an update, but um, wow. it was a big process, man. Like, you know, his, his wife, when they took him home from hospital, because he was in there for ages after waking up to rehabilitate and recover, um, you know, she was, he was fully dependent on, on the people around him. He couldn't do a thing for himself. Like it's, it'd be such a humbling experience and, and such a commitment from that family to each other to, to make that work so that he could be with his wife and his children. So that, that really helped sort of, I guess, realign sort of my mind about, you know, where I was at and what was, what was possible. And, and I guess it um, reminded me about the, um, the value of being grateful. And I started keeping a, a, a gratitude um, journal, which was a big part of, of my, I guess, progress with, with recovering mentally and found that really, really valuable. How often do you write in that? You write in like every day or every other day? Or? Uh, I was probably doing it at the time. I would have been doing it maybe four or five times a week. Yeah, I try and do it. So I try and you know use catch yourself when you're feeling a bit negative about something or you're feeling down and use that as an opportunity to kind of help pick me back up. Um, I don't do it anywhere near as often as I'd like to now. It's more of a, um, a mindfulness exercise rather than actually writing it down in a journal. Um, it's something I could benefit from, I think for sure to keep doing it. Um, but it was a tool that was really useful at that time. And um, now when I, when I talk to sort of um, you know, schools or businesses and that sort of stuff, I talk about, yeah, the value of, you know, that, you know, you need to kind of accept your situation to a degree in life, not in, the, in terms of giving up, but accept what you have and, and stop sort of wanting for more. Um, you know, we're so consumed, consumerism is, drives the world, you know, with, with marketing and it's all about the next gadget or the next, you know, whatever it is. And there's this whole fear of missing out. We was like, let's look around us and actually acknowledge how much we have to be thankful for. Um, so that's, you know, the acceptance and the, the gratitude and then finding a purpose. Like just, you know, you need to have a strong network of people around you. You need to invest in those relationships, but you need to find something that really makes you you know, happy, uh, something that gives you some meaning to your life, you know, something to, to chase and to develop and, and find that growth in. And, and I just think that's huge. You know, if you've got a purpose and you've got someone to love and someone that loves you, then you're, you're well on track to sort of going where you want to in life. Whereas if you're missing any of those things, there's a huge hole that needs to be filled by something. Sure. So once you realize that you had to make a pivot, how did you land yep. in, in discus? How did you land in that that sport in track and field? Yeah, cool. So um, it was like I said, I'd had those six operations. Um, it was months after that. I was going to the pool still, thinking that somehow I was going to make improvements by doing these recovery sessions. And I got out of the pool one day, and I almost didn't make it back to the car. Like I was, it was super pain. Like it was always painful anyway. Like it was really difficult to walk. But like I was at a point where I, I almost couldn't put any weight through it and I was leaning against walls and wasn't far off having to crawl back to the car. Um, and so like it was just a, a sledgehammer for me that just said, right, this is it. Like you, it's about time you rang the Paralympic Committee. Like I'd had people recommend that I do it earlier and I was I put it off for too long, to be honest. Like I, I was just worried that I'd make contact, start something, do okay and then 
see some improvement because of my determination and then not be able to compete because I fell somewhere between able-bodied and para. Um, and it was just silly. It just delayed my, you know, my starting. But um, I rang the Paralympic Committee. Within a week, I had a meeting with them in Adelaide, so in my hometown. Um, they were coming over anyway. Um, we talked about different options, um, rowing, kayaking, uh, wheelchair basketball, table tennis, those sort of sports, um, and athletics. And when they said athletics, that was the one that really appealed to me, but I, I had no concept of how I was going to do it. I just thought that it was a bit high in the sky and, um, you know, I couldn't really weight bear or walk properly. How the hell was I going to compete in that? But they reassured me that if, you know, pick what you what you sort of are more likely to be passionate about and something you think you'll be able to do well at or improve at. So I was like, well, athletics have been my first choice. And I said, okay, now we need to find a way to make that possible. So you need to get in touch with this person in Adelaide. I'll put you in, in contact with coaches and, um, and medical providers um, who are interstate that I need to see. Um, and we just start trying to make it work. So I met with the, um, the coordinator in Adelaide she was fantastic with her assessment stuff, put me in touch with sort of people to help with pain management and assessment stuff to work out what sort of support I needed there. Put me in touch with the national throws coach um, for athletics. Um, so to get talk to him and get a concept of sort of, you know, what my options were and how we sort of proceed with it. And then with the orthotist who made um, and continues to make my um, dynamic ankle foot orthoses, which have been critical to, to being able to do what I do. Um, and so, yeah, and it was still a long process. Like, you know, I did all of that quite quickly, but even once we got the orthosis made, the ankle was so chronically um, inflamed with synovitis that it, I ended up having to go back into a moon boot um, and kind of pull back from all activity just to let it settle enough that when I went to the orthosis, I could actually get some function out of it because um, otherwise I just, I wasn't getting any, enough support from it. But once, once we did that, I, I was able to start to start building up and at first I couldn't even do like a push exercise with my legs. Like I, I struggled to do a hip bridge, like pushing my bum up off the floor. Um, and then within six months, I think I was single leg pressing maybe a hundred and I don't know, 150, 170 kilos, which I thought was pretty good at the time. Um, and it was better than some of my able-bodied mates that were, were elite athletes. Um, and today, like, so what we're probably three years post or close, somewhere between two and a half, three years post starting the sport. Um, I squat around 185 kilos for a two rep max, um, deadlift around 190 for a one rep and hip thrust about 285 for a two rep max. So like I'm way beyond what I was ever doing playing Aussie rules. Um, you know, and I lift just about more than anyone in in the Institute of Sport Gym in Adelaide, uh, which includes all the able-bodied guys. So it's been a phenomenal turnaround. Awesome. So if someone listening to this or reading this and they're a para-athlete, what, what advice would you give them about, you know, how to overcome your, your limitations that they'll be, you know, competing against some of the people that are the best, that are able-bodied or whatnot? Yeah, so... Um, I guess the first thing is that you, you need to reach out to someone and, and talk to them about it and, and talk to those that are doing it. So social media is great now. I mean, people can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, reach out and ask some questions, which I, I get a bit of. Um, they can contact the Paralympic Committee in the same way that I did. Um, and all of those people, they've, they've been in this for, for a while now. You know, they've had to go through the process themselves. They've seen others go through it. 
So there's a real sense of compassion amongst para sport, which is is enviable, I think. Um, and you know, if they're to tap into that, then anything's possible. It's just a matter of um, of sticking to it. Like obviously, you know, overcoming that self doubt um, and and trusting that these people know what they're doing, and and that you know, if you put in the work, that you'll get somewhere, and then it's worthwhile in the end. Definitely. What's your goal now? So the big one for me is Tokyo 2020, uh, the Paralympics. I guess path to that is we'd be very hopeful of, of meddling and, and meddling quite high um, by that point. So at the moment, I'm about, I'm probably around about 10 metres off, off being able to contend for a gold medal. So, it, you know, it's a lot, but it's also not given how much ground I've made in the first two and a half years. These guys have been doing it for a decade or more and, and they're, they're well supported financially by their countries, which we're not. Um, and I'm trying to structure things so that I can get more external sponsorship and support to be able to make up for that, that gap in funding um, so that I can train enough to be able to compete with these guys. Because I feel that in two years' time at World Champs, I could be you know, a top four competitor who could maybe threaten for a medal. But by the year after, I think I'm, I'm a genuine chance to, to be ascending to the top of my sport and, like I said, hopefully successful at that Paralympic games and then there's a world chance following that as well where where I should be even even better prepared for that so there's a real three-year window I guess from 2019-2021 where um, if the plan goes well everything could come together really nicely for me because it's a great stage in my development um, you know in terms of spending sort of five six seven years in the sport you know so strength technical stuff all that sort of stuff should be coming together by then and and it's a clear focus. I know what I'm working to. So it's just a matter of um, structuring my life around it to make it possible. Awesome. So from what I'm hearing so far when we talk, it feels like the biggest thing for you is just having the, the, the mindset of what you want and that kind of helps guide you towards everything you want to kind of align yourself. Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it, like I said, it's that purpose. So it's having something to work towards, like, and knowing that that's, it's got some meaning to it. Like it's, you know, you're doing it for a, a good reason. And, and the benefits of it are not just for me, like there's a team of people, like in terms of my coaches and support staff, you know, they get to be, you know, we're, we're a team that's achieving this together. And then there's my sponsorship partners, which I'm, you know, adding to, which, you know, that's another team that, that, that I get to share it with apart from all the sort of friends and family and and then the example that you set for for others like that might be you know young sort of para athletes or or just people with barriers to sport to be able to see someone overcome something and and persist you know until they got what they set out to achieve um i think that's pretty powerful as well like i've i've always loved sport i've always worked in it um and you know my my passion is for that social inclusion to to have more people involved and to bring to use sport as a tool to bring people together. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I saw on your Instagram, you're like doing a lot of like stuff at school and like that. What, yeah. what are you doing there? Are you doing more motivational talk there, or what all you? Yeah, I do, I do a bit of that. It's something I want to do more of. Um, so, um, yeah, like I said, I've spoken to sort of schools and businesses and organisations and stuff, and it's it's been well received. So, um, it would be great. Great to a bit more of that. I think there's a, a story and a message that um, 
that I can verbalize pretty well for people. So yeah, if I can have an impact on other people in that manner, then that's fantastic. And like I obviously do my coaching stuff as well with my strength and conditioning and sports science work. But that's something I'd like to just keep as more of a hobby on the side of my sport, you know, so that I can really make sure that I've got the time to to not just train, but recover, which is you know, one of the biggest limitations when you get to the elite level um, so that I can, can actually achieve what I want to achieve. For sure. So as we work toward wrapping up a little bit, when you look back in your career, like five, 10 years from now, what are some things you hope you're, you are, I guess, more like remember by when it comes to your legacy as an athlete and as a person? Um, that I was a compassionate leader, um, that I was authentic, that I was a team player, someone that was persistent, you know, and persevered through and overcame something to achieve what I did. Um, so that kind of, you know, that's strength of willpower and those sort of things. Um, you know, someone that cared about what they did and, and the people around them, you know, it wasn't just about me. Um, and hopefully, you know, someone that, that, you know, achieved what they set out to achieve, which, you know, is that ultimate success of, of gold medal and, and world, world, um, being a, a world record holder. But I mean, those things, are important um but i think if you obsess yourself with those two things on their own it could be a pretty hollow path and you may not get where you want to go but for me those those first things that i mentioned like if you get all that right you got a great team of people behind you, you know, and, and with you to share that journey with and i reckon that's what what really maximizes your chances and the experience because you're you're enjoying every moment of the the, the process and the hard work rather than um holding it holding your breath for for something which is really hard to achieve and maybe maybe not not getting it in the end and being disappointed whereas you've got so much to show for it if those other things are prioritized i feel you trust the process trust the process yeah it's such a such a token thing to say isn't it yeah. but you know it, it's it's probably enjoy the process you know like you know don't you know like i said to you before like when i was playing footy i spent so much time worrying about what was next rather than what was now so I've tried to flip that a bit and, and by doing that, I've noticed that, that everything else tends to fall into place a lot better rather than causing yourself unnecessary stress, which is impact your performance anyway. So where can people find you more about Daniel and what you're up to? Yeah, so social media. So um, it's, I'm at Daniel Kirk Oz, A-U-S, um, across um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, and then um, there's obviously some um, interviews and stuff on YouTube and stuff. I need to do a bit of work on that to, to bring all that sort of stuff into one place on my own channel. But um, yeah, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter is where I'm doing a lot of my, a lot of my stuff. Um, and that's where people generally get in touch with me like yourself. Um, and um, yeah, trying to build that up so that sponsors can sort of benefit from that as well. So that, you know, we're not just making transactions as, as partners, but we're actually bringing new people onto our team um, and they're there for the journey. Um, so that's something which I'm getting some momentum with, um, but you know, any more support that I can get and people that have got some creative ideas with it, that'd be great because it, I want to provide a return on investment for those people, which is is both emotional, but also financial in terms of their businesses as well so that we can grow together. Awesome. Well, appreciate you taking the time to do this. Enjoy the rest no of worries. your day. Thanks brother, you too. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Nine Point Started with a Dream podcast. I was your host, Colby Gillum. The journey just getting started, and you can check out more at ninepoint.com.